Actually, let's continue in that place of prayer as we um, come to God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, our continual posture of prayer really is um, a vital one and an important one for your people. It is a reminder that we are ever dependent upon you. Um, Even as we come to your word, as we think about um, the things that we've been reflecting upon, and even this morning, the heaviness, the weightiness of the subject before us, we want to uh, do so in a way that brings glory to you, that honors your word, that is compassionate and caring. And so we pray, Lord, for the grace to do that well. We pray that both the preacher and the, uh, all of us as hearers alike um, will see and taste for us the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a, our desperate need this morning. And so we pray that you would grant us that which we need in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, in our uh, current um, Sunday teaching series here uh, each week, we are looking at the whole subject of uh, anxiety and stress and the things that really unsettle us and, and weigh upon uh, weigh heavily upon our minds. And we're looking at it over the course of these weeks and, and months, uh, looking at it from a number of different angles uh, through this series. And this morning we are addressing the delicate and weighty subject of suicide, uh, which I readily admit is, is, is not necessarily the most uh, uplifting of themes for a Sunday morning. And it's, in fact, it's one that I, I wrestled for some time uh, whether to address it or not, uh, but obviously I've, I've chosen to do so, and I think rightly so, for a number of reasons. And first of all, uh, it's important to acknowledge that there will likely be some in this room who are n- not too far removed from the crush and sting of suicide. That at some point in the near or distant past, you've experienced the bitter taste of suicide of a, of a loved one or a dear friend. Uh, that has is, is hit you directly. Uh, additionally, there may be others for whom the reality is even more immediate as you face or, or have from time to time throughout seasons of your life, you, you live with the intrusion of suicidal thoughts. Uh, it's a persistent or passing reality in your life that is all too real. And I think it's important that we understand even that the, the thoughts and emotional experiences that lead some to suicide can flow from the same spring as just even the mildest depression and sadness. And we've talked about that even in the most recent Sunday. Also, for those of us who maybe feel somewhat distant and removed from this whole subject, I mean, it's neither touched us directly or indirectly, and so we may even question this morning's relevance. I I do think uh, that in so many areas of the Christian life that we really do benefit when we come to a better understanding of what others do experience, even some of our own brothers and sisters in in Christ, so that we're better able to love them well, and that we're more equipped to respond with understanding and compassion. I also think it's important to address this subject because the Bible has a lot to say about it, actually, um, which 
this subject, which is a growing concern in our society. Between 1999 and 2014, the suicide rate in the U.S. increased by 24%. The demographic which is most acutely affected is those who are men in their late 40s, early 50s. And yet it's alarming that in the under 25 generation, there has been a leap of 56% in the suicide rate in the last two decades. So we are talking about something of genuine concern. The trends are alarming, and so we might want to ask the question, why is this happening? Where, where is this development coming from? A few generations ago, in fact, back in 1897, the man who sometimes considered the father of sociology, uh, Emile Durkheim, the, the French sociologist, he published a book called Suicide, where he noted the fact that it was amongst the most affluent countries in Western Europe, the most wealthy, the most apparently stable, that the suicide rates were peaking. And he began to investigate this and came to some conclusions that I think are still very relevant today. His point was that in previous generations, when societies had not developed such sophisticated systems of industry and sophisticated economies, people were still very much identified with and connected to family, tradition, nationhood, and tended to get their sense of worth and meaning and identity from those things. And that with those things effectively eroded in a post-industrial society, people were being swept into a kind of big urban swirl of, you know, you kind of, kind of um, expected to, to kind of compete as individuals in the new realm where you're no longer valid by, the, by virtue of, of, of your connecting with a family. You're not you're given your worth uh, by, by that, by, by your background and family, by your position in a smaller community that's got tradition and roots. You're, you're, you're valid if, if, if you perform well. You're valid if you make the grade, if you succeed, if you make the right decisions out of a, a range of multiple decisions that you wouldn't, you know, in previous generations, you wouldn't even have had to face. And you wouldn't have even had to consider them. And, but now, in a world where there are so many choices, so many freedoms, so many consumer decisions to make... It can, in fact, be bewildering and exasperating just to have to do that. And also to, have to, to know that you've got, to, to, um, you've got this constant sense of evaluation going on. Have I made it? Have I succeeded? Am I enough? And he, and he said that in a, world, in a world like that, it's perhaps not surprising that suicide rights seem to exceed expectation, even in the most apparently wealthy societies. And I wonder if a generation, you know, if generations later we're seeing that trend multiplied in a culture where family has been even more broken down, more disintegrated. You know, now we, we build the whole culture around individual fulfillment, don't we? 
We care about your consumer needs, and we make sure that, that you get the chance to get exactly the service you want, and we want you to give us a five-star review for our service. And, and so we make sure that you as an individual, will you, the consumer, get what you want, and there's never been a society, perhaps like ours, where people individually are expected to get what they want, and yet at the same time, perhaps there's never been a society where people have felt so lost and so without meaning and purpose in life. And perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that one of the effects of that is this suicide rate goes up. And so we're going to look at how the Bible deals with this, and there are several places we could go to in the Bible, and we'll go to a few of them, but I want to start by just reading from one of Paul's letters, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You know, Paul went through <coughs> a lot of struggles and suffering for the sake of being a disciple of Jesus. And, and he expresses it sometimes with genuine emotion. He's very happy to share uh, with us his actual feelings. And he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 8 to 10. He says these words, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. This week I heard someone talk about a time in his past when a close friend of his had attempted suicide, a dear friend of his who he was very close to, and it put a huge wedge between them. It, it, it caused a real strain on the relationship. This man had attempted unsuccessfully to kill himself, and his friend found it extremely hard to forgive him. And for some time, he actually felt like he couldn't talk to him. He couldn't face him. He, he couldn't get past what had happened. And it struck me that that's an example of how suicide, even in our day and age, when we are, I think, increasingly encouraged and expected to express deep compassion towards people who struggle with suicidal thoughts and feelings and tendencies, but nevertheless, we find suicide particularly a dark and painful thing to come to grips with. We do struggle. We do find relationships are profoundly hurt by it. And it's worth considering why that might be. I wonder if the clue is actually in the name. The word suicide literally means to cut oneself off. Cut oneself off. It's a, it's a case of cutting myself off from everybody. And it means cutting myself off even from the people who would have most trusted me, who I would have been most close to, I, I, I suppose it, would be, it could be seen as the ultimate act of betrayal and rejection. And so people who are left behind often will struggle with this feeling as much as any. Why, why, why didn't they talk to me? Why, why didn't they come to me? Why did they reject me? 
Why did they behave so independently? I feel rejected in this whole horrifying experience. And to be sure, it's worth thinking about how that might be traced onto a relationship to God. It's, it's a, if it's an act of betrayal towards the, our closest ones, then maybe it's towards Him as well. And that certainly is the understanding that the church and the Scriptures have given over hundreds and hundreds of years. That suicide is no small thing. It is the taking of a life. And when you take a human life, you deal with somebody who carries the image of God. This is no small thing to do. It's not to be played around with. And in the Bible, that would be, it would certainly be understood in that way. Yet, having said that, it's important and interesting to see how the few cases of actual suicide that we come across in the Bible are often understood in a remarkably compassionate and tragic kind of way. We see personalities in the pages. We see 3D characters. We don't, we don't just see kind of flimsy cartoon villains. We see people who have genuine sorrows and pains and griefs, and we see what drives them. We see what makes them tick. We see people like King Saul who's one of the most tragic figures, I think, in all of Scripture. He causes us to grieve when we look at what point he came to. And, and finally, that's how his life ends. He, he takes his, his, his life, or at least he, he asks a soldier to kill him. Another character, a few pages later, Ahithophel, you, you see a guy who's such a noble and wise man, respected by all, but he's brought... Terrible destruction on his own life by making a dreadful decision to follow a traitor and ends up himself reaping a terrible reward and decides to take his own life. And there are other people who don't take their own lives, but they express suicidal feelings. They express suicidal instincts in the way that they talk, often in the way they pray. It may perhaps surprise us to think of it, 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 this way, but, but some of the most her, heroic characters in this whole book are brought to the very point of begging God to take their life from them and wishing that God had never given them life and being so desperate, so, so loathing of their lives and of themselves that they are brought to a place of longing to end it all, just longing for their life to be taken. Job prays that way on really more than one occasion out of a, the desperate, desperate, desperate season of suffering in his life. Jeremiah, another famously deeply emotional man, expresses suicidal thoughts. There's, there's no other way of saying it. The man gets suicidal in a few places in the, I think, extraordinary book of Jeremiah. Elijah, he is one of those extraordinary Bible characters that, that does seem extraordinary until you see he's pretty ordinary. And the Bible has a, a, a way of quite powerfully making the point that, yeah, even Elijah brought to a terrible place of despair, disappointment with self, dreadful self-disillusionment. I'm no better than my father's, he says. I've had enough. Take my life from me. When he sees himself acting in a way that seems to reflect fear and cowardice and exhaustion, emotional exhaustion, he runs away and hides away in every sense. He tries to hide from God, and God finds him out. God sort of, you know, chases him down in the desert, chases him into the wilderness. And Elijah's words are, I've had enough. Take my life from me. I don't want to talk. I can't do this anymore. I just can't. 
I can't face another day. I mean, Elijah, one of our heroes, brought to such a place of self-loathing, of suicide. The Bible is a beautifully honest book. It understands human experience in all of its different dimensions and facets, and we should be very grateful that this book does such a good job helping us to see. And the reality is that suicide presents itself to us in ways that can at least seem reasonable. Times in our lives can be so bleak that suicide seems persuasive for some. You wouldn't think so because the kind of overwhelming human instinct is for survival. That's the thing that seems to be uh, most pressing. Uh, we, we, We want to live. We love life. We don't want to die. We don't want to bring it uh, in on ourselves ordinarily. I, maybe you've seen the film 127 Hours. It's based on the true story of a, a man who took off one of his own limbs with a dull pocket knife in order to survive. I mean, that's, that's the human drive. The, 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 there you have it. I want to live. I must live. I don't want to lightly fall into death, into nothingness. And so it's even more telling, perhaps, that people with the human instinct for survival can be brought to a place of deciding there's something better than survival. There's something worse than death. And that is to carry on living this non-life. The problem is we don't know. We can't know, surely. That's the problem the suicidal has to face. What do I expect to happen? What can I expect? That, and famously, that, this, is, this is Hamlet's line. What can I expect if I take my life? As, as he has to deal with it in, in the famous story, he doesn't know what to expect. And yet the French philosopher Pascal, he, he said that really the fact that people still commit suicide suggests that the promise or the hope of relief the, the hope of escape, limited though it may be, is still enough. The promise of the potential for escape is still better for the suicidal than the existence that they think they're being forced to endure otherwise. So people ch- choose it really out of a false appeal. Suicide comes to the individual as what we could call a false gospel. And by that I mean, what does the word gospel mean in Scripture? It means good news. A false good news. A false appeal of freedom. A false appeal of escape and relief and rest is offered to the suicidal. If I, if I take my life, it's my best hope. It's my best chance. It's, it's like there's an advertising campaign that's going on in the soul, and it's preaching a message. It's trying to persuade. It's trying to win us over to a way of thinking that seems perhaps kind of preferable. It's preferable to what I'm having to face. It's got to be better. And so there's a route, there's an escape, and suicide says to us, come, come, I'll help you, I'll help you escape. And we should see what's going on, we should see the, the force behind it. I haven't mentioned yet the other famous suicidal in the Bible, Judas. You know, it says in the book of John that Satan entered him when he went to do the most despicable thing that perhaps any human's ever done, the betrayal of Jesus. 
Jesus' act of betrayal surely stands out as something that the devil inspired in him. And it says later that when he came to see what he had done, he hanged himself. And it's a, it's, a, it's a very vivid and sudden and dramatic version, I think, of something that happens in a subtler form again and again and again with those who commit suicide or are drawn towards it or tempted towards it. Because there's someone alive in the universe who Jesus referred to as a liar and the father of lies. And his business is deception. is saying, this is the way. Come. This is the way to safety. This is the way to freedom. This is the way to fulfillment. And gradually, as we surrender more and more of our will, more and more of our freedom to his dominance, what we end up left with is little more than a shell of our life. Judas went out and hanged himself because it seems the devil said, well, I've had what I need from you. You're expendable. I've used you up. Jesus is telling us that there is someone in the world whose business it is, is to use up human life, to use it up and to throw it away, cast it away. And, And he will do it by deception, he will do it by being a liar and the father of lies. He, he has been lying from the beginning, Jesus said, and he's, and he's good at it. And the way that he does it primarily, it seems to me, is by kind of del- a deluding line of argument. He makes his line so persuasive that we become more and more convinced of the lies and more suspicious of the truth. If you've ever talked to someone who's in a state of deep depression, if you've ever talked to, 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 to someone who's in a place of such profound introspection that you do worry about their life, you might know exactly what I mean. That you can be speaking to someone things that are so patently clear, rationally obvious to you, but there seems to be some kind of blockage. This, this person's problem isn't actually their reason necessarily, or at least their reason seems to have been hijacked. You, you, you can't reach their reason because their will has become captive. Their will is saying, we won't receive another narrative. We won't receive another version of ideas here. And the lies that suicide brings to us don't want to dialogue. There's no discussion. There's just the forcing of its company upon us. It it forces its way into our consciousness so that that the things that we might have thought, that they may have been unthinkable. And maybe many of us in this room could say that there have been moments in our lives where the unthinkable has occurred to us. And we thought, just for a moment, maybe I should just end it. Maybe, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. Maybe that's the answer. You know, you know I reckon there, there are some in the hearing of my voice today who, who, who can say that. There's, there's, that's been part of the tape playing. That's been part of the inner rhetoric, this kind of flirtation with the notion of it, 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 it could just be over. And it's something that forces itself on our otherwise rational minds and becomes the normal language. And it's brutal and it's false and it comes from a liar. And Jesus says, if you become my disciples, if you follow me, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
He comes to deliver us from the liar. He comes to bring life. He says in the same gospel, in chapter 10 of John's gospel, I've come that you might have life. He comes to bring death. He comes to kill. I've come that you might have life. He is the giver of life. So how does this work? Well, it comes to us by deception, and it's not rational. Uh, Somebody who's suicidal, or at least at the various potential stages, will struggle to hear reason. And even that, which could be very good advice, will seem impossible. Ordinarily, they would think, well, of course, that's the right thing I should do. That, that's the solution. That's how I should act. But no, it seems irrational. The, the, the rational seems irrational because assumptions have crept in. Lies have crept in. Maybe lies about the future. The, the person that's suicidal makes godlike judgments about the future. They seem to know everything about the future. It will never come good. It cannot. I've had enough. I'm on my own. And this will never change. You know, those are the kinds of words that Elijah uses in, in 1 Kings chapter 19. He speaks as though certain things are certain. And, he's, and, and, he's, and the surprising thing in his case is he's so wrong. He says, I've had enough. I'm finished. I'm the only one left. And God says to him, you're not the only one left. There are thousands of us. God says to him, you have a future. I tell you, you have a great future. It's unthinkable for Elijah that he has a future at all, let alone a great future. But how wrong we can be. We are finite. We don't know. But we take upon ourselves God-like abilities to predict the future. How often have you predicted the future? How often have you predicted the future accurately? But the suicidal irrationality assumes that their ability to get the future perfectly right is unassailable. No, 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 no. I know, I know, I know. The thing that needs to be broken is the deception, the assumptions that have no basis in truth. But they are powerful. The assumption that by taking my own life, I don't affect others. It won't affect others. Not so much. Not so badly. How wrong. How wrong to not see the hand grenade that we're pulling the pin from as we leave a shattered world behind us. The assumptions about God and the assumptions about the afterlife. It's a strange irrationality if we say, I can't turn to God in my despair and depression because God doesn't care about me. God doesn't know my problems. He doesn't know me. He doesn't care for me. He doesn't love me. I'm not even sure He's real. So I'll kill myself. But surely the act of killing yourself is to put your life even more in the hands of the eternal God. Yeah, the afterlife will be okay. But you're saying terrible things about God, that He doesn't care, that He doesn't love you, and yet you're prepared to throw your life away in the vain, vague hope that He might provide, that He might actually care for you. It doesn't work logically, but the whole thing doesn't. This is the point we're making. Even the assumption that for life to be worth living, I have to see how it can be fixed. I have to know how it's fixed. I have to do the work of Atlas, holding the world up. Because nothing less than that is good enough. I have to to solve all the problems. Who says? Whoever said that? Your your 
life is best lived when you don't know all the answers. You don't know what's to come tomorrow. It's normal human life to not know what's coming tomorrow. That's not so strange. That's normal. To turn to God in trust and, and say, I don't know the future. I'm, I'm terrified of the future. I'm terrified of what I have to face. There, there's, there's people I can't face. There's shame I can't face. There's, there's, there's stuff that I've failed in. There's, there's so much that I'm terrified of. And, and, and yet somehow you've promised that you hold the future. And so I trust you just for today. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know about tomorrow. I almost feel like I can't trust you for tomorrow, but I'll trust you today. And then I'll trust you for the next day. And you know what? This is all that God asks. That's actually all He asks. He doesn't ask us to, to hold the universe up. He doesn't. He never does. He calls us to trust Him for today. But we don't see that sometimes because we're deceived. And so the necessity is to break through the deception. That's the work of the hour, right? It, it, it's, it's to be set free. It's to being helped to stop and, and, and question the assumptions. Have you noticed that as we've been going even through this series, how much of the time, that's, that's the very thing. For instance, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying, consider the sparrow, consider the lily. Look at the, the birds in the air. Look, look, look at them. Why are you anxious? Jesus insists on exercises that slow us down. Why? Because anxiety and suicide refuse to let you slow down. They get you trapped in a headlock. They, 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 they get you in cycles of despair. And so you must push back, dialogue with it, ask questions of it. What, what kind of questions? Questions like, what am I expecting from this? Relief? Am I expecting to make a, a statement of some kind to the world around me? Am I, am I feeling a desperate need for something? What, what do I think suicide will, 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 will relieve me from? Is, is there a deep sense of need? What is it that you feel that you need? I've lost something that I can't get back. What is it? What, what is driving you in this? What is the, the great need that you feel? What is the great thing you've lost? Perhaps a, that's an indication of, 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 of what you have, of what you have put your hope in. You've hoped in something. You've hoped maybe in something that you shouldn't have. You don't have to. There's another hope. You, you've imagined that the pain that you feel now is eternal, that it is constant, that it's never going to change. But ask yourself, is the pain lying to me? Pain does that. Pain lies and says, I'm never leaving. But you know, just by stopping for a moment, you can regain your objectivity. You can see things differently. So to question the pain becomes essential. What's going on? Is the pain deceiving me? Is it lying to me? Can I be reconciled? Are there people that, that you can't imagine ever being brought back into fellowship, friendship, reconciliation, forgiveness with? You read this book, you see it's full of hope. It's full of hope for the shameful. And shame is perhaps the biggest thing involved in this. Perhaps the question we should be asking is, what is, what is it that I'm ashamed of? What, what great thing am I ashamed of? What what do I fear? What can I not face? There, 
there are things that are worse than shame. And it's time for us to see things in the right proportion and actually see that you can be rescued from shame. That the message of this book breathes out to us that message. Shame is perhaps at the heart of the problem for the person who is suicidal. Because the shame is what stops us from being able to talk and open up. That's why I went to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 at the very start of this message. 2 Corinthians where Paul, the strong Paul, the extraordinary Paul. Paul was one of the most phenomenally gifted people in the history of mankind. And he knew it too. He talks about it in one of his letters. He says, you know, if anyone thinks they're qualified, I'm more qualified. He's sure of it. He knew what he was good at. So he wrote a whole letter here saying, you know what, in the end, I'm desperately weak. That's one of the main points of 2 Corinthians. It's Paul saying to people, by the way, living in Corinth, one of the most strutting, overconfident X-factor cities in the world, Corinth, come here if you dare. And make an impression, especially if you're one of these religious people. May, you, know, you need to be deeply skilled, strong with public speech. You need to be highly gifted. You need to be commanding. You need to be honorable and strong and superior. And Paul writes a whole letter to people of this city saying, actually, here's how I'm going to present myself to you. Here are my credentials. I'm desperate. I'm Desperate. I have been brought to places of such despair that I've despaired of my very life. You didn't say that in the ancient world. Maybe you can say it today. On daytime television, you can get a, a little round of applause, but not so much in ancient Corinth because this is a pre-Christian world where, where people are not impressed with weakness. And yet Paul understood more than anyone, it seems that God was going to get His work done through weak people, people who are not impressive. And if you were impressive, God's method, God's plan was to bring you to the place of deep despair in yourself, just as He says in these verses here. This was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God's plan for your life is to bring you to a point Perhaps frequently, perhaps frequently, where you don't rely on yourself, where you see, I have not got it. I am not the answer, and I haven't got the answer, and I am desperate. I am desperate. Here's the thing. How do you interpret those times? How do you handle it when you come to that point of seeing that you're desperate, seeing that you're nothing, seeing that you failed? Because if you misinterpret it, it becomes persuasive evidence that you need to end things. Because there's a liar, there's a deceiver, there's a father of lies who takes those little pieces of information and brutally assaults you with them. But then there's another master who says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. All all who can't do it. All who are at the end of their tether. Come to me, all who are 
poor in spirit, come to me. I'll give you rest. What's the qualification? You can't do it. What's the qualification? Failure. What's the qualification? Weakness. What's the qualification? Despair. You think your despair is a reason you can't come to God? I tell you, it's the exact opposite. You are in the best place to come to God. If you come to a place of failure, you come to a place of deep despair. This is the time where you turn to Jesus. This is the time where you meet him. He's, he's good in the pit of despair. I mean, he spends a lot of time there. That's where he goes looking for people. Suicide is when we choose to die. We choose to throw away the life that God gave us. But there's one person who didn't even have to choose to live. Well, he did choose to live, but he chose to live in order to die. And such a death. Jesus came to the point of total abandonment. Talk about being cut off. The Bible says he was cut off from the land of the living. Jesus tasted utter despair. Jesus was utterly abandoned. Jesus was cut off, rejected by people, and on the cross, rejected by his Father. Heaven and hell despised him. He was utterly despairing on the cross. Why, my God, have you forsaken me, he said. Jesus knows about despair. Your feeling of deep despair, your feeling of failure, your feeling of shame, your feeling of having to to face things that you don't know how you're possibly going to face them, Jesus took it all, and he took it all. He he took it to the end. He took it to the grave. He cried out in despair. And he did it for the person who's so sure that they're disqualified. They're so convinced. They're so persuaded that there'd never be a place in God's house for them. That there'd never be a moment concern in the heart of God for them. That person who's so completely certain can have the almost unbelievable and stunning discovery that the whole point of God's plan through history, all that God's plan all that he put in place from the moment he said, let there be light, he was planning it from before the foundation of the world, that he would come into this world as a man, that he would take on our curse, that he would take it on himself, all of the shame, all of the despair, all of the horror, all of the worst things about us, and he would take it on himself, and in return, he would give us hope, such hope. And so we can look at him as the one who's risen, risen from the dead, literally, physically on the third day. And as Paul says, knowing this, we don't put our hope in ourselves. Our hope is in the one who has delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us, and on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. If he rose from the dead, friends, we can put our hope in him. Because he's involved. He's in it with us. He's in this life. He's involved in tomorrow. He's involved in the day after. He's very involved. We put our hope in him. He will deliver us again and again, says Paul at the bleakest point of despair. And I invite you to do the same. Let's pray. Father, as we come to communion, we... We confess that uh, these issues are too big for us to deal with in, in our own strength. We need the Holy Spirit's help. 
And I pray for every man and woman hearing these words that that they would be set free by the wonder of the gospel of Jesus and given back great measures of hope. In Jesus' name, amen.